We believe running is freedom and empowerment. We believe running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people run, the world will be a better place. We believe in running because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Running Company Run ATL Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. Good evening, everyone. My name is Mike Cosentino, and the sound that you are about to hear suggests that the pub is open. Peachy's Pub coming to you once again, Run ATL Podcast. We have gone to a pubcast. We are not afraid to date stamp this. It is early June. Of course, we are in the midst of the coronavirus, and we've elected to stay on the air, do everything being mindful of social distance, but continue to bring you content that we're really, really proud of, including the opportunity to talk to people that we just have a real personal affinity for. That includes my good friend and our featured pub runner this evening. I will say right away to you, Fritz Taylor, welcome and cheers, my friend. It's great to have you on this. Good to be here, Mike, and uh, really good to be here. Good to see you again, and uh, howdy to uh, all the Big Peach running company fans out there. I'm a fan myself. Well, I was going to say, you've always been so good to us, so we consider you part of that for sure. D2 and I have been looking forward to having this conversation. For those of you who are not familiar with Fritz, he is a fellow resident for all of us in Atlanta. That has not always been the case, but as we go through his background, you'll understand perhaps what brought him here, but then we'll let him comment on some of the things that have kept him here because of course he has fallen in love with this city and so many of the things that make it the great city that it is and he will expand on some things i am sure that you will immediately connect with but for those of you who do not know fritz he has been quite the influence on our industry the running and sporting goods industries he has been quite the influence on products that you've been around, perhaps even called your favorites for quite some time. In the past, he has been the product director of footwear, among many other things at Nike. He has also been the senior vice president for footwear at Brooks, currently the number one brand in running footwear. He's been the vice president and general manager for the running division, the biggest division at Mizuno USA. That is what brought him to Atlanta. Many do not know, but this is something you should be aware of. The North American headquarters for our partners at Mizuno are indeed here in the Atlanta area in Norcross. Norcross that brought him here to our fair city. More recently, he was the vice president of run and performance footwear at Under Armour. And even though he was located in Baltimore, elected to keep himself and his family as Atlanta residents, that's just a little bit about him. But we are going to get to learn a lot more, including some questions that I've prepared for you, Fritz, because I may know some of it, but I know I don't know all of it. So this is going to be great for me as well. Are you ready, sir? (laughs) I'm ready to go. Ready and ready to go. Well, one of the things that we talk about on the Run ATL podcast is really how not just run and walk as a lifestyle, but quite frankly, as a foundation for how we live is such a good pairing. And I remember talking to you about your first role at Nike. And as you kind of came into that organization, certainly an organization, a brand that needs no introduction. But I think right away, your story 
and how you ended up with that first real position with that brand in that organization is reflective of why runners, why walkers, why fitness enthusiasts are so goal, perhaps even target oriented. And if you don't mind, for me again and for others, maybe give us an indication of what drew you to Nike, how you started and perhaps how you set that goal and ultimately achieved it to be part of that team out there in Beavers. <laughs> sure, I guess that's as good as place as any to start um, kind of how I broke into the industry. Um, so um, I'll try and keep the story short. Um, <laughs> for me, it started, graduated from college. I went to school uh, down here in the South, University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. Yeah, got out of college and um, probably like a lot of people, didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I loved running. I was spending all my, you know, every dot, every penny I had at the time on the latest, greatest running shoes. Um, and uh, and I thought, you know, in the back of my head, I thought, oh man, what a dream to one day be working on running shoes at Nike. But I thought, oh man, you probably have to be a really good runner or something like that, you know? So uh, got out of college. Um, figuring out what I wanted to do. I ended up uh, teaching for a couple years, wasn't making a lot of money teaching. So I was tending bar. I was working in a, actually a sporting goods store at the time. There weren't very many running stores around back in those days. But I was, I was doing a bunch of jobs and I was running a lot of miles and I was, I, I just loved running shoes and I was buy, always buying the latest, greatest. And uh, when I was, uh, attending bar, a lot of people would recognize me. I stayed in Chapel Hill after I graduated and I was tending at a bar there and people would come in and sit at the bar and they would recognize me. They'd see me running around town. And sometimes they'd have questions for me about, hey, can you recommend, some, I'm thinking about running, can you recommend some, what shoe should I get or something, you know? And I, I love talking to people about things like that. And one day at the bar, uh, a guy came in, sat at the bar, heard one of these conversations going on between me and someone else at the bar. And um, turns out this guy was a Nike sales rep. And he told me about this job that Nike had just created called an Eakin, which is Nike spelled backwards. And the role of an Eakin was to go around and educate stores that sold Nike product all about their shoes and it was mostly running oriented. It was mostly educating stores that sold Nike running shoes. And uh, I remember him telling me about this job and thinking, oh my goodness, you can get a job talking about running shoes that they'll actually pay, a company like Nike will pay you just to go talk about running shoes. That's gotta be the ultimate dream job. Um, so this guy was nice enough to give me a few contact names. And again, this is the mid eighties. So before email and things like that. So of course, uh, I immediately started sending my resume, phone calls, you know, to these contacts, trying to like establish something with Nike to see if I could possibly get one of these Eakin jobs. And uh, wasn't sure what the qualifications were again, I was a pretty avid runner at the time, but I was not, you know, like a, a world-class Nike sponsored level runner or anything like that. Um, but um, anyhow, um, so for about, 
for about nine months, I continued this quest of trying to get this Econ job. Meanwhile, teaching a bit of school, bartending, working in a retail store uh, in North Carolina, and, uh, and no luck. Um, I made some contact with some people, but the Econ, there were no Econ jobs open. And, you know, you're getting a little bit of the, I was getting a little bit of the, hey, we'll contact you when there's an opening kind of thing, you know? Um, so fast forward nine months, um, this Nike sales rep comes back into the bar and, uh, and we start talking and I'm thanking him and thanking him for all the contact information, but telling him that, hey, you know, the door hasn't opened yet. I haven't been able to get my foot in that door. And uh, he made a suggestion that uh, Nike was opening a retail store up in Freeport, Maine. Nike hadn't, I think Nike at that time had one or two stores in the entire country and they were gonna open a brand new store up in Freeport, Maine. And this Nike sales rep suggested that if I started working in the Nike store, it would be a foot in the door that could potentially lead to me getting this Econ job. So uh, I, I got the name of the guy who was gonna be the manager of the store, called him up. We did a phone interview um, and uh, he ends up hiring me uh, to work on the floor in this store he's opening. <laughs> I think at the time he told me he didn't have any kind of management level jobs open, but he could hire me just to work on the floor. I think, you know, it was like around minimum wage, five bucks an hour at the time, something like that. Um, so uh, I jumped on it. I thought, okay, I got to go for it. I had, uh, I was driving a, a little Volkswagen Rabbit at the time. I packed up everything I owned in the Volkswagen Rabbit, including a futon bed that I rolled up and put in the back seat and uh, put in all my clothes. And I drove my Volkswagen Rabbit up to Freeport, Maine and uh, started working in a Nike retail store up there. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the first initial step. So I have to comment. I think this is important. It's important for those of us who would consider ourselves somewhat full-fledged adults. And it's certainly important for those who are still thinking, man, what do I want to do? I mean, first of all, I have to say very rarely does something good come out of anything that starts a man walked into a bar, right? A lot of times it just goes south from there, but this sounds like it has some real promise. And then also we look at your willingness to be very humble and to be very focused on ultimately what you want. You pack up, move out, you do it in what would not necessarily be considered hugely comfortable fashion if it all fits into your car and you leave North Carolina to some degree here in the Southeast, God's country, to drive as far north as what Freeport, Maine is. But nonetheless, you had a goal and that was part of getting there and you went for it. So now you're on your way to Freeport. What happens at that point as you're making your way north and thinking this is all going to be worth it? Uh, by the way, I, I should say at the same time, my mother thought I was absolutely crazy. Um, she was like, wait a minute, you know, you've got, you're starting to build a career in teaching. You've got other possibilities. You're going to move up to Maine and sell shoes for minimum wage. <laughs> now, and you can appreciate this. You're on the other side of it. I know you and I both share the fact that we have teenagers, college students. And now if you put yourself in your mom's shoes at that time, do you understand her thinking or do you still think mom didn't get it at the time? 
Yeah, it's like, it's following the dream, man. It's following the dream, you know? And I remember, I remember, you know, before I left North Carolina, I had some doubts, but I remember the weekend before I left, there was a, a big race in Raleigh, North Carolina, a, a 10K. And I remember going to the race and uh, running in the race and just being around the excitement of a race and the ru and runners and everything. And I, and I just said to myself, I'm making the right decision. You know, this is it. I want to be a part of this. If there's any way possible to be a part of this, I want to be a part of it. And that made me believe I was making the right decision. So, uh, so anyhow, I, uh, I went up to Maine, um, got up there in October, um, ended up spending a very cold <laughs> winter up in Maine working in this Nike store that just opened. Um, we were in Freeport, Maine. It's a little touristy kind of town. I still remember, uh, and you can relate to this as a store owner, Mike, um, I still remember cold February days up in Maine where it was probably like four degrees, wind blowing, where we would maybe have one customer the whole day. Um, but uh, interestingly, in Freeport, I don't know if you know, it's home of L.L. Bean. Yep. They were right down the street from us. We would have days, like I told you, in February, freezing cold, wind blowing, one customer, you walk up the street to L.L. Bean and they would be jam packed. Mm. <laughs> well, and I think that's perhaps why they were there. Of course, that's where they originated, but they understood Maine perhaps a little better than Nike did to just show up and be in Maine. But right. nonetheless, it was part of a grand experiment as Nike started to think about retail a little bit. Right. So anyhow, um, I put in about, uh, it was right around my 10 month mark at the store. Um, again, and I was still calling and emailing with this dream of be getting the Seekin job and, and still was hearing that nothing was open, nothing was happening, that they would get back to me. Um, and about 10 months up in Maine, uh, a woman from the headquarters in Oregon flew out. She was the head of retail, head of retail training. Um, and Nike was putting, at the time, Nike was just starting its plans to open outlet stores, factory stores. And they were putting together a training program for managers of the very first um, factory stores. Um, and so she came out to Freeport. I spent a little time with her. She talked to me and she asked me if I'd be interested in uh, moving to Oregon for a short while to go through a training program and then go out and manage Nike's first factory store which at the time was slotted for Flint, Michigan. Um, so <laughs> and I remember thinking, uh, Flint, Michigan, not so sure about that. But, uh, but, but the job, the opportunity was a chance to get back to the Nike headquarters, maybe meet more people, maybe you know, advance this goal of getting the Seekin job. And uh, so I accepted the offer to go through the uh, training program. Um, packed up my Volkswagen Rabbit again, moved all the way out to uh, Oregon. So went from Portland, Oregon. So went from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. Uh, and my Volkswagen Rabbit settled in there, started working in the retail training program. And uh, within about, I think it was like a month, six weeks maybe, uh, got a call out of the blue from the head of the Eakin program that they had an opening. Uh, down in uh, California, and would I be interested? 
And uh, of course, it was it was a, a no-brainer for me that I'd be interested. I said, yes, please sign me up. So he scheduled me an interview. Um, then I had to go in and tell my boss, the head of the retail management training program, who had brought me out to Oregon. And I had told her previously that I would really, my ultimate goal was to be an Eakin. But uh, so I went into her, I remember going to her office one day after I got the news about my interview, told her that I got a chance to interview. I really wanted to go for this job. I was expecting her to be kind of excited and supportive of me, but um, unfortunately she got quite angry and uh, told me that uh, if I she only wanted people that were uh, committed to retail in the retail management program and that if I interviewed for the job, the Econ job, if I even interviewed for it, I was off the payroll immediately. Um, so, and she gave me 24 hours to give her my decision. Um, so, so I spent the night thinking about it. Of course, it was still kind of a no-brainer, pursuing the dream, the goal, and uh, went in the next day and told her that I was going to interview for the job, and uh, she sent me home. But at this point, you've doubled down on this. At first, it seems like, well, yes, if we're talking about talking about shoes to other retailers in California or working at an outlet store in Flint, Michigan, with all due respect, I grew up on the Michigan border. I'm a big fan of the great state of Michigan, but still, it'd be really easy to say, well, that's an easy choice. But with what you've already done, you know, Raleigh to Freeport, Maine is a short trip compared to Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. So you've already put it all on the line and now you've doubled down. Yeah. You do not have a job waiting for you if you don't get this job with the Eakin program. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah. And I was out in Oregon where I knew nobody. You know, I, I met a couple of people while I was working the training program there, but I knew nobody out in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> so tell me, about the, tell me about the interview. When you go in, are you nervous? Are you shaking like a daisy in a springtime breeze just because of the fact that you know you got to make this happen? Or are you cool as a cucumber because you're like, I've already proven I've got nothing to lose. I'm, I'm meant to be here. Yeah, it was, it's funny. Uh, I'm sure I was pretty nervous. I, I do remember being nervous, but um, I remember I interviewed with two people and um, they both started me, they immediately dove in asking me questions about running shoes, you know, testing my knowledge of running shoes. And they, of course, they wanted my story and how I came to sit there and stuff like that. But as soon as they started asking me about running shoes and, you know, what I thought about this shoe or that shoe or things like that, oh man, I felt like I'm in my element. This, this, is, this is easy. It, was, it went really, really well. Well, and can we assume that you got the position that this was at least not only a reward for the miles covered, but a suitable way to conclude what had been a very unlikely journey from North Carolina via Maine over Michigan and to Oregon with a permanent position that then took you to California? Yep, I, I ended up uh, getting the position. They sent me down to uh, San Francisco area and uh, I was in Eakin there for about two years. Um, believe it or not, I ended up eventually moving up the ranks and managing the entire national Eakin program for Nike uh, about four or five years later. So yeah. 
Well, and for those who are not familiar with Fritz's career, moving up the ranks, he's putting it perhaps very humbly. And I'm not going to let you do that too much, Fritz, because I know moving up the ranks, whether it was that Econ program that ultimately you managed and, and vastly improved, or it was even closer to where your real passion was, and that was the product, or maybe even the running footwear product itself. So ultimately, you find yourself in a position not only to potentially be considered for, but ultimately accept and have real influence on the performance running product at Nike, not only at the time, one of the top brands in the sport, but obviously one of those brands that anyone would say was most influential in the fact that there was a such athletic footwear line as performance running. So let's pick your brain a little bit. For those of us on the layman's side of how product works, there are models that maybe many have heard of, like the Pegasus, now in its 37th version. There are models, perhaps, that those who have been long-time or even midterm runners have had. Maybe they loved it. Maybe they wish it was still made, but it's not. Maybe they didn't like it at all, and they're glad it's gone, and they've moved on to a different model or maybe even a different brand. But making product is complicated. It is complex business. How did you start to acquire all of those different facets of what was necessary to not just bring product to market, but bring truly good product that you could be proud of? Yeah, um, it was a, you know, I didn't uh, jump from being an Eakin right into to working on running shoes. Um, there was a Nike at the time, um, Nike liked to move people around a lot. So uh, Nike was pretty typical where if you were in the same job for more than two years, that was pretty unusual. And, uh, and that was kind of Nike's way of giving you a lot of different experiences that could, maybe you would ultimately end up in the place you wanted to be with a lot of experience to do a really good job there. Um, so from, uh, after managing the Econ program, the first job I took um, in, on the product side was something called special makeups. And it was working with the bigger accounts. And at the time, it was mainly doing colors of existing models for them, uh, things like that. And it was a way to start to really understand the product process and what it took to really make shoes. And even though it was just color and sometimes we'd switch materials, um, that was kind of my first product job. Interestingly, my second product job, this one I still scratch my head at, my second product job, they, they gave me responsibility for all of Nike's retro model, which now retro old introductions, like if you're familiar with the Nike Cortez or the Air Force One, that's huge, huge business for Nike these days. But at the time it was kind of a, a small business and, um, there was a handful of models, Nike Cortez, which is one of the first Nike running shoes, the Air Force One, which is a very famous basketball shoe. It's a lifestyle shoe now, things like that. And so that was my, my second job, managing the uh, Air Force One, which now is probably one of the biggest volume shoes at Nike. You know, it's probably a, almost a, a billion dollar franchise in and of itself or something these days. <laughs> So when you're making these shoes, and for those of you who have just heard special makeup for the first time, to bring it into maybe more current context, we call it SMU in and around our business, but something like that 
Peachtree Road Race edition of the Mizuno Wave Rider or something that might be patriotic themed, like what Brooks has done with the launch or Saucony's done with the Canvara. For those who may wish to see something like that this year, our website certainly has those, but those are SMUs, obviously an important part of the business, but also an important part for a brand to establish itself as creative and innovative to those who might be considering their products or coming to get to know their business and their brand for the first time. So obviously an important part of the business. If you look at whether it's that part of the business or the more core part of the business, Fritz, I know going back to it being complicated that there are things that like SMU or special makeups, we have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. What are a couple of things that you would say, you know what guys, if nothing else, just because we're on the pubcast and we do these types of things when we can, you know, say we're just at a pub having a beer together, that you can pull the curtain back for us a little bit and give us a little bit of a reveal that we wouldn't otherwise know about in terms of how these shoes, SMUs, Air Force One, performance running, whatever it might be, how they actually get to market and ultimately end up on our feet. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a crazy process, and uh, one of the I've, I've been fortunate enough to go over to Asia quite a bit in my career, where most of the shoes are made. I've spent a lot of time at the factories over there, and uh, I still am amazed every time I've ever made a trip over there. I'm still amazed at how it all kind of comes together, you know, and what we see in your store or, you know, on runners' feet. Um, one of the things that uh, will amaze you, I think, when you really see it is, you know, a typical running shoe has probably somewhere between 125 to 200 separate pieces to it that all need to be assembled together. Um, and a lot of those pieces come from separate manufacturers. You know, there's, we think about a factory that builds shoes, a lot of times the fact the main factory is more of an assembly house. And they're getting one piece from one manufacturer, getting another piece from another manufacturer, getting another piece from another manufacturer. And all these smaller manufacturers are kind of experts in their own little area, like a certain type of mesh for the upper or the material for the heel counter or even the rubber for the outsole. All of those things come from separate manufacturers who have expertise in those areas. So um, even as you're developing prototypes, you know, the, the entire product, it takes about 18 months typically for a shoe from the time it's first designed to actually make it to market. And a lot of that time is just building prototypes that you can test and confirm and going out and getting all those little pieces just right so that they all come together and the shoe works and functions exactly like you want it to. Uh, and a lot of times as you're building these prototypes, there's an issue with one piece or another piece and you got to go back and figure out what's going wrong and fixing those little pieces and then again, putting the whole thing back together again. So the complexity of that can be kind of mind blowing. So you're almost like a conductor where you have all these different instruments and you got to bring them together in a way that it comes out really harmoniously, maybe even looks, sounds, feels beautiful. For those who heard that time frame, that is correct, 18 months. 
So if you think about, I mentioned a shoe earlier, Pegasus 37. Fritz, would it be safe to say there are people who are already working on version 39 or 40, even though it's just 37 that's in the market right now? Oh, absolutely. I guarantee you that uh, Nike is already looking at the 39 um, and they probably got ideas for the 40 as well. Um, being a pretty big benchmark, 40th, 40th edition will be a pretty big benchmark. So I'm, I guarantee they're already thinking about that one. What can they, what kind of excitement can they make around that, that 40th benchmark? Well, and I would imagine there are times where it's tough for you to actually keep what you know about future iterations to yourself. I know sometimes for me, it's difficult and we see product anywhere from six to 12 months before it actually hits the market so we can write our orders and help our manufacturers build the right orders for their business in those factories. But it's tough for me then to keep it to myself where I'm like, man, you like this model? Wait till you feel the foam that's in the midsole on the next one or that slight adjustment to the way they're doing the laces or the way they're doing the toe bumper. Man, does it really, you can't really talk about it then because you don't wanna take people into the future and then have them want to wish their life away for the next version when you just want them to lace up today and enjoy the model they have on their feet. Right. No, and, and I will tell you one of the biggest challenges, and I know all the companies are trying to shrink the time to market because one of the big challenges, as you've alluded to, is that um, say the 37 is just hitting right now, the 38, I guarantee you they're having to confirm everything on the 38 right now to be able to go into manufacturing. They're going to have to confirm all those little pieces right now so that it can go into manufacturing in time to hit the market a year from now. Um, and you want to, as a product manager, you want to get feedback on the latest shoe that's just hitting because you there's probably some new things on that shoe that you've introduced and you want to make sure that runners are enjoying them and liking them and they're being well received. So you don't, because if there's a problem, you don't want to do the same thing on the next model, you know? And so it's a, it's a really tricky timeline to manage those kind of things. Well, I remember us talking at one point about, a uh, particular model that at the time wasn't a flagship, it was a brand new introduction. And sometimes what you think is gonna be perhaps the most successful part of an update or a new shoe altogether, maybe doesn't end up with the same splash you thought. But then also every <laughs> once in a while, I think you perhaps end up with that sense that we got lucky because we thought if anything was gonna hold it back, it might've been this, And but holding is what everybody loves and they want more of. And the shoe I'm specifically thinking of, Fritz, I still remember when the Air Zoom Vomero came to market. We had just tunned Pegasus for as long as we'd been open. It had been that flagship neutral shoe. When we first opened, it was $74.99, and people loved it. It felt as good as the stuff that was $85 or $90. And now, all of a sudden, at the time, here comes this $120 premium neutral shoe that I always classified as what was intended to be the big brother, kind of the mentor to the Pegasus. Even though it had no experience in the market as the Arizum Vomero, it was going to be that much better to pay somewhere between $35 and $50 more. And of course, as a buyer, as a retailer, as a business owner, I was skeptical, but it delivered. 
you gave me an indication that that wasn't always the sense that what was going to happen at Nike. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a bit of a, a funny story behind that shoe. Uh, and I remember it was actually, it was actually a big, at the time we thought it was a big nightmare, turned out to be a big surprise. So uh, a little of the backstory on the Vomero. Um, around that time, so the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, um, ASICs was really on a roll in the market. You know that. Yes, you know, I remember. They had, they had a number of shoes really working for them. And, uh, and uh, you know, in, in talking to runners about what they liked about ASICs, why ASICs on, on such a roll, it was that they had a really good, they had a, runners perceived their underfoot feel to really be good, better than a lot of Nike shoes at the time. You know, it was light, it was cushiony, it was bouncy. They had a really good underfoot feel. And um, so we were like, okay, we gotta, we gotta figure out what, we gotta crack the code. What's the secret to ASIC's underfoot feel that, you know, we were doing chemical analysis of their midsoles. We were, we were doing everything. <laughs> and then I remember my, my, the head developer for running, developers are like the engineers on the running team. He came back uh, from, a, from a trip to Asia, to China. And he was all excited and he came into my office fresh off coming back from this trip to China. And he's like, I've got it. I've got the midsole foam that's, it's like ASICS foam, but it's better. It's gonna beat the ASICS foam. And, um, and he had these test shoes made up. And uh, I remember going out and running in them that day. I was like, wow, this feels fantastic. You know, it had that bounciness to it, but it wasn't soft and mushy. It was light. It was, it really felt good. And um, so we built a few more test shoes, got people running in them. Everyone who was running in them loved them. And um, at the time we were working on the Vomero and we thought, okay, this will really help set the Vomero on a good course. We'll put this brand new foam we just got. It's gonna, we, I think we were like calling it the, uh, you know, something like the ASICS killer foam or something like that. You know, we're gonna like, we're gonna put this in the Vomero. And um, <clears throat> so spec it into the Vomero and um, feeling good about everything. And uh, the shoe hits the market. And I can't remember why this happened, but I remember at the same time, we got manufacturing uh, shoes for us to test, shoes that were actually off the manufacturing line rather than prototypes. And um, we got them at the same time, the shoe was actually being shipped out to retailers. And I remember being in the office, getting a pair of them, open up the box, pulling it out, feeling the midsole. And my first thought was like, oh my God, we've screwed it up. The midsole felt so soft, uh, so soft and squishy, like much softer than we had specced or much softer than we had been running it. And um, I thought, oh my goodness, this is a disaster. You know, the shoe is too soft. Runners are gonna hate it. They're gonna kill us for it. And um, so my and my my head developer, the engineer who had found the foam, he was like he was a mess. He was like so distraught. He like what happened, you know? Um, 
But you know, those are the kind of risks you have when you're introducing something new, like a new phone. So anyhow, as kind of the business lead, I had to put together these plans to like recall all these shoes. At the time, I think Nike had shipped already like 30,000 pairs of these shoes out to retailers. And we were gonna have to recall all of these shoes because we thought it was a huge mistake. Um, anyhow, we start talking to retailers who've received them, you know, saying, hey, we're gonna, thinking we're gonna say, hey, we're gonna take them back. Everyone's loving it. Like people are putting it on their feet, going out for a run and absolutely loving it. <laughs> well, and I remember that shoe because at the time there was a shoe from Asics called the Gel Nimbus. I don't remember what version it was, but it was almost unstoppable in that premium neutral segment at $120. And the Vomero comes in somewhat understated, perhaps, even though it was from Nike and immediately started crushing it. Now, I hope I'm not going to offend any Nike shareholders or those who have been Vomero faithful for however long it might be. But I would say to this day, that was still the best selling Air Zoom Vomero that we ever had at Big Peach Running Company was that first iteration when you thought, man, maybe we made a mistake. Yeah. And it was crazy, too. And I remember people were running in it and loving it. And then we were hearing all these complaints that, you know, people were getting maybe only like, especially bigger runners were only getting like 200, 250 miles out of it before it kind of compressed down, but they wanted another pair, you know, like they were like, it feels so good. I want another pair. <laughs> well, and obviously that is validation. If somebody says, I want another pair. And I know that I would perhaps be taken to task if I didn't ask this question, because there are oftentimes when people say, I want another pair, or as soon as they come into our stores and we say, oh, the new version's out, you can almost see, you know, the ashen color come over their face because they're like, oh no, every time that happens, the new version comes out, they went and screwed it up and my shoe that I have depended on, that I've fallen in love with has changed. So I'm going straight to the horse, as they say, so we can get it from you. Why is it that manufacturers need to change what seems to be proven? And in some cases like that first edition of the Vomero really working, does it go back to those timelines that you were talking about that there has to be a second edition or a third edition or a 36th or a 37th edition? Why is it that manufacturers feel so compelled? I'll give you my take in terms of a retailer afterwards, but I don't think mine's gonna be nearly as interesting. So for all of our listeners, why is it that manufacturers are so compelled to update those models, sometimes those dearly loved models, every 12 or 18 months? You know, uh, I think that's a really good question. I think some of it, I think there's kind of two answers. Some of it is um, has to do with the timelines that we talked about and how, you know, you're having to make decisions about the replacement model um, before the one it's replacing is really even hit the market. Um, so sometimes there's some mistakes there. But I would say, uh, honestly, and you know, I've I've been at a few different brands. I've been at Nike, Brooks, Mizuno, Under Armour. All of them have their strengths and weaknesses. Under Nike is the one that there's such a premium in the company to like don't rest where you are today. It's like Nike is a company that's about change, you know? They're never gonna be the most consistent company out there. They're gonna constantly be trying to like 
play around with things, make things better. Sometimes they screw it up. Sometimes they hit home runs. Um, it's just part of the DNA of the company. Um, and I can, I'll give you some examples of that. Um, but it's an interesting, I mean, I remember when I, when I moved from Nike to Brooks, for example, let me back up for one second. I will say that um, I think ASICs, they made a big run for more than a decade because they were probably the best company at making small incremental changes. They didn't screw up a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and they were able to grow and grow and grow their fan base, people who like their shoes over time because they didn't screw them up a lot. Where Nike was kind of going up and down with different models, you know, Nike was changing, changing, changing. And again, it's just part of the DNA of, of the companies. Um, I would say that, that I think Nike, it's, I still love Nike. I know there are a lot of Nike fans out there. Um, I think Nike's always going to be a company that you, you roll the dice with a little bit, you know, they're going to hit home run or they're going to like, they're going to mess something up pretty big. And that's just kind of part of their DNA. Well, I think that sits well with the industry. And we oftentimes remind people that, that, you know, it's in the pursuit of being even better. I love the fact that you're willing to risk. You mentioned ASICs and what I would agree with, which were at least at that point when they were 30 plus percent of our business. And I think the channel's business where the changes were really incremental. They knew they had a good thing going. Why start swinging for the fences if you can just bunt and move runners over and still win games? At the same time, for those that had much smaller amounts of market share or who did not have a portfolio that across the board performed quite as well as what ASICS was at the time and other brands at different times, you might as well try something really bold. But I think as runners, as walkers, as fitness enthusiasts, and more importantly, as human beings that have kind of committed to living our best lives, being our best selves, why would we not be willing to say, yes, this is safe and works, but something else could be even better. Let's go find out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Fritz, because you already mentioned a couple of other brands. And I would imagine that going from one brand to another is exciting and yet perhaps brings on a little bit of anxiety. That's just human nature. If you think about those brands that you've been with, just to remind some of our listeners, Fritz has spent real time at Nike, at Brooks, at Mizuno, at Under Armour. How do the cultures of these organizations strike you at this point as someone who can kind of look in the rear view? Still, very much a part of this industry and yet i have to believe the cultures were different what would you say about just some of the cultures in those organizations or perhaps the things that are still a part of you to this day even if you're not part of that culture yeah yeah it's funny um i think uh i think each of the different brands that i've worked for the four that you mentioned in particular they each have distinct personalities and, um, and I'll give you my impression being on the inside of the personality of the brand, but I bet it won't be too surprising for, for you on the outside because I think they're kind of reflected in how they project themselves too. Nike, as I mentioned, Nike, one of the things about Nike was um, Nike prided itself on always doing things differently, always thinking differently. Um, if you wanted to advance your career at Nike, 
the kiss of death was to do things that people could criticize you as being kind of me too or that other brands were doing, you know? Nike valued like thinking differently, doing things differently. I'll give you one example. Um, one of the things that we started when I was there, if you remember, was the Bowerman series of running products. Yes, yes. And the Bowerman series was meant to be that kind of product that was more consistent, that stuck around, that didn't change so fast, you know, because that's what runners were asking for and wanting. And so we started this series of product called the Bowerman series. We named it Bill Bowerman, the Bowerman series after Bill Bowerman, one of the founders, because we wanted to kind of respect him. Um, I will tell you, internally, people hated the Bowerman series. You know, oh, it, really? oh yeah. It was like, you know, the shoes were like too predictable, too steady. They really saw that. And I learned a lesson, you know, like I pushed it for a while, but it's just not Nike's DNA. You know, it's just not their DNA. It, it was probably... I think the running team, we really felt we were doing the right thing with that Bowerman series, but the running team got so much internal criticism from that at the time. It was it was really crazy. Wow, that's that's even fascinating to me. You know, we've been in the business for a while now, not as long, of course, as you have, but I still think about that period, the Bowerman series, as perhaps the best performing period for Nike and performance running, at least as long as we've been around, it got to the point where if it was part of the Bowerman series, we wrote the order, no question asked, both genders, multiple colors. It was going on the stockroom shelves at Big Peach Running Company because we just believed in it because you built that credibility with those models that had preceded whatever the new release might be in the Bowerman series. And we had confidence. And it was a fun story to tell our guests. It was like, see this little icon of Bill Bowerman on the sock liner of the shoe? This when they came in and said, well, I've had Nike or Nike's got so many shoes. I don't know if I had a good one. It was like this icon on the sock liner, you can take this to the bank. This one means something. This for you is going to work. Yeah. Internally, it was the toughest battle. Like it sold well. Bowman series sold well. It performed well. It did what we hoped. Internally, it was, it was a constant battle. Wow. Okay. So, so, uh, so, so then, then so, right again, I think. I think it's part of Nike, like, look what Nike's doing these days with Vaporfly, Alphafly, things like that. I mean, it's just a different DNA, and there's great things about it, and there's not so great things about it, maybe from a runner's perspective, but you have to, you have to live with both. So after Nike, I went to Brooks, um, and I got to say, um, and a, a funny, another little funny story, when I got to Brooks, Brooks had just started relatively recently using run happy and i hated run happy i was more of a competitive mindset runner and i hated run happy and I, like the head of marketing i got to know the head of marketing and i kept telling, like let's drop run happy forget it it's terrible and, and he argued against me all the time but you know what they uh, brooks is the nicest like that's brooks that's their personality it's who they are and it took me about six months to realize that. Like, it's it's who the brand is. I, like, Brooks was just the nicest company, the nicest people, the best intent. They wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to serve runners in the right way. I remember, you know, 
we, we working at Brooks, customer service would get maybe a letter from a runner in the Midwest who was a little bit upset about something. And like, it was a big deal. You know, whoa, we upset a runner? Like, you know, that was, that upset people internally. Um, and I'm sure, poor Brooks, I'm not there, but I know they had some big, big issues with a new distribution center where they weren't able to ship for a number of months last year. And, oh man, I could, I, I still have some friends at Brooks and I just know how much that hurt them, you know, just who they are as, as, a, as a company and a people and as a brand. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I can speak to your sentiments were very true. Obviously, we lived through it with them, as did all of their retail partners with those distribution challenges. I was on a call today that Jim and Dan were on from Brooks. Obviously, you know who I'm talking about for those who are not familiar with the Brooks leadership team. You know, it is their C-suite, as they call it, their senior leadership. And they are those nice people. And I will tell you their ability to connect with the runner and with the retailer is as seemingly genuine as any brand we work with. Doesn't mean they always have the best product. Doesn't mean they always have the best personnel in the right positions. We're all fallible in making a mistake here and there. But I think your sense is still true to this day, Fritz. And I will tell you, they are going into 2021. Run happy lives on, my friend. <laughs> I know it. I know it. It still does. <laughs> and maybe I've come around a bit on it. You know, it works for them. So as we get older, as we get a little bit slower, run happy becomes even more powerful. I, I think. Right. So uh, next for me was Mizuno, and it was my first time working with a Japanese brand, and uh, super interesting. Mizuno was if, if Brooks is run happy and just you know just super nice, wonderful people to be around. Mizuno is engineers. It's a company of engineers and, um, and a very engineering mindset to the company. One of the first things that, again, I came into Mizuno, one of my first criticisms that I thought I was going to change was like, all the shoes look alike. They all look alike. I couldn't tell the difference between their shoes just by looking at them a lot of times, you know. Um, but once I got into the company, I learned that they had really um, deliberate design principles about where overlays on shoes went and the size of the heel counter and the tip. Um, they really, it was hard for designers to design around it, but they had really, really strict guidelines all around this idea of manufacturing consistency. This is the best way to manufacture shoes that are going to fit consistently, feel consistently, and this is the way we have to do it from an engineering perspective, you know? Didn't matter, Nike guy, you know, like you, you wanna make something that looks so cool and different, you know, you risk, they weren't, they weren't willing to risk messing up their fit or something like that, you know? A, a funny little anecdotal story. Um, uh, this was probably around 2012. Um, we were we were trying to improve our market share with with women, um, and we heard feedback that women thought our shoes looked too busy and too technical, um, and that women were looking for something that looked a little bit cleaner. Um, and um, so in Japan, 
they did a, they decided to do research. We're going to, okay, we're going to, this is a problem. We got to do research about it. And they interviewed over 600 women and they had built all these prototypes um, that had different number of overlays. Overlays are kind of the support straps on the upper. So they built six prototypes. They brought a, a, built a prototype with no overlays, one overlay, two overlays, three overlays, four overlays, six overlays. Interviewed 600 women and said, what do you like best? Turns out women, the majority of the women picked the shoe with three overlays. And uh, that was the result of their research. And so then they, they wanted to like mandate, okay, women like three overlays, every shoe in the line has to have three overlays. <laughs> wow. You know? So one, re so you get a focus group, you do the research, and then at that point, the entire line gets tooled that way. That's what they wanted, yes. <laughs> so I just have to ask, when you were at Nike and you did research, how much impact did it have in the line? Because I know everybody does research, right? They send out pairs, they have their population of product testers that are outside the organization and inside the organization. What is the difference perhaps between a Japanese brand like Mizuno, very engineering driven, very technical in their specifications, and Nike that's pushing the envelope, obviously there has to be some flair to the product, there has to be a story line that comes alongside the product release. How would they differ relative to using consumer feedback or even product research? Yeah, I think um, I think Nike at the time I was there really prided itself on more gut instinct about things. You know, like we were all runners, we're the consumer, we know consumer. We, we, we go out and talk to runners a lot. We talk to running store owners like yourself, you know, I remember that's where we met. Um, but we also relied on our gut instinct where Mizuno, much more of an engineering mindset, um, relied on, okay, we did the research. Here's what the research told us. That's what we have to believe. Even though our instinct might says, might say, no, we need to change things up in our line. The research said this, that's what we have to do. Um, and I would say, so Nike operated much more shades of gray, where Mizuno was much more black and white. <laughs> well, I know that that position brought you to Atlanta. It obviously gave me the good fortune of really getting to know you. And I know that in the time that you were there, Mizuno with at least domestically at the time, four business units. And the business units that at one point were the dominant business units for Mizuno USA, golf and diamond, which was their baseball, softball. They also participate in volleyball and running was there, but it wasn't the star performer. While you were there, and I believe to this day, running is that number one division of their overall domestic business. How do you take a culture that perhaps isn't even as focused on the sport or the industry and then create an organizational appreciation for what running can mean to the business in its entirety, as opposed to being in a brand like Nike, that that's what got them into sporting goods or Brooks, where it's almost all they're talking about these days. And Mizuno, it was a little bit of a second thought for a while until all of a sudden it launched 
and became that highest volume business unit. How do you change the thinking about what running should mean inside a business that wasn't that way previously? Yeah. So, um, so again, like, like you alluded to, when I came to Mizuno, the biggest business was uh, golf and um, baseball. And again, you think about the engineering of a golf club. Mizuno irons, golf irons are famous. They're the, you know, probably the best engineered. They're some of the most expensive, the best engineered golf irons on the market today. So again, that engineering mindset kind of was pervasive at the company. Um, the fun thing about what happened at Mizuno uh, and I can't give credit because some of the people, a lot of the people were already there. We had a really fun team in the U.S. Mizuno is a Japanese company, but in the but in the U.S. we had a really fun group of people working on running. And we started, and we were runners, and we we talked about running, and we 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 clearly loved the activity and loved the sport, and we started getting some momentum. And um, and I think the company saw that hey, there was this group of runners in the U.S. getting momentum and growing the running business faster than the golf business or anything else and growing it faster in the U.S. than anywhere else in the globe. And they ended up giving us a lot of leeway. Like they let us in the U.S. take the lead on a lot of big decisions about the direction of running product and running marketing and things like that. And um, it was a really fun time. And it was, it was because we had a really good team, you know, people like Rod Foley and Dave Lambert and people like that were, were just fun to work with. And the sales guys, uh, we had a fantastic sales team out there. You know, there was a good energy there at the time that was infectious. Well, and I, I know you still keep in touch with many of those team members of yours. Many of them are still here in Atlanta for those who are quicker on the draw than I am doing this live. Rod Foley was a guest on the Run ATL podcast. Check that out. You'll have to go back, fish out the episode on yourself since I can't find it fast enough to do so on the fly, but it is there. Check out Rod's time with us. And then, Fritz, you go from a brand where now you've got this enthusiasm that continues part of the legacy, perhaps, of that team of running being not the only business that Mizuno USA is doing by any stretch, but what I would say is that pinnacle business and what I believe is somewhat of a pinnacle point for how they're known as a brand, and that is what they're doing in and around running. And of course, here in Atlanta, where they've done some cool things with the AJC Peachtree Road Race, some of their work with the Atlanta Track Club, it shows that they've continued to invest in that business. You've also been with a brand that I believe started with marketing that I was just like, yes, they got it right. I still love, can remember so clearly the athletes run campaign. That's something we've been saying, even if not as eloquently or as concisely as what Under Armour did, that that's so true that you may do all to tennis, but you're doing some running, even if you don't call yourself a runner. If you are that high school athlete, even if you're not on the cross country team, you're playing softball or you're paying, playing lacrosse, you're going to be doing some running. Athletes run. And yet at the same time, I'm not afraid to admit that at Big Peach Running Company, as of June 2020, there's not an authorized Under Armour SKU on our shelves in any of our stores because we just haven't seen the product get yet to what we believe would be a requirement for our guests and their satisfaction. So then how do you go from a brand that's more engineering, much more intimate, to perhaps one of the most explosive 
sporting goods brands of all time wanting to make inroads in a place they haven't yet been able to do so. Yeah, and, and um, that explosiveness that you talked about was what lured me there at the time. They were, Under Armour was going through explosive growth. Um, they really looked like a big threat to Nike and Adidas and others. And they really, they knew, they knew Kevin Plank, the founder, knew that running was a key. Running's the biggest category for Nike and that they had to get into running to really get to be a big, they wanted to be a big brand. Um, so that's what kind of drew me to them. Um, I will say, like you might guess, personality-wise, if, you know, if Brooks is run happy and the most happy-go-lucky, fun-loving company I worked for, Under Armour was probably the most intense in terms of, like, competitive team sport, a bit of that male-oriented overconfident maybe jock mentality and um and and i think it's what's hurt them today to be honest with you and, and i tell kevin plank that the, the the founder of the company um at the time kevin plank really believed that um under armor all under armor had to do was design a running shoe it could be almost anything put an under armor logo on it and runners would come flocking to it you know, and not realizing that all the, the the brand building, all the confidence building that has to go on, all the work with running stores at the local level that has to go on to build your credibility. Um, you know, it, it's, it's easy. I think it's relatively easy for a runner to buy a t-shirt from a different brand. It's a much different thing when runners buy their shoes. You know, they're they're much more aware of, hey, maybe I could get injured. Maybe this, you know, I'm not going to have such good runs, things like that, um, if I don't have the right shoe. And um, it takes a while to get that right. And, and Under Armour had no patience for that. Kevin Plank wanted it to happen tomorrow, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know, in fact, Fritz, I'm going to already say, will you come back? I can't believe how quickly the time flies. So I, will you come back? Because we've established a few people on our roster of VIPs that we're like, these are the guests that we need to have in a regular cadence on the Run ATL podcast. Can you give me the just the, the promise on air that you will come back and let us continue to pick your brain? I love telling stories, man. I'll come back anytime. <laughs> All right, well, I'm, not letting, I'm not letting you off the hook yet because you've got a few what I'm going to call rapid fire questions that I have to ask you partially as an Atlanta resident, but entirely as a runner. So first of all, with all of your experience and you've been around the world making trips, I know you lived in Europe for a while, met your bride while you were on assignment in Europe. So you've got real credibility as a global runner, as an individual and as someone who has influenced the industry. Favorite place to go for a run? Anywhere. Where is it? <laughs> uh, my, I have to say, um, I miss the trails of the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's fair. Okay. Uh -huh. So, of all the events you've either been around or done, 
whether it was as a participant, as a sponsor, as an interested party, favorite event of all time? Oh, my favorite event of all time. Again, I hope I'm not a broken record. I, I should say something about Atlanta, but Hood to Coast Relay. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That was, I did that, I think, seven or eight times. The idea of running, but in, it's more of a team-oriented situation. You're in a van. You're on a team. 24 hours. Oh, man. Those things are crazy and a blast. That is awesome. I love that event as well. And, of course, here we're, at least for this time period where you can declare no loyalties, favorite shoe of yours of all time, that if you could just put it on a fresh pair in that particular version and now have it on your feet today because of the experience you remember it delivered time and time again to you, favorite shoe of all time, what is it? Yeah. I still remember, and it was before I was working for Nike, um, Nike introduced a shoe called the Internationalists. And, um, and I remember Nike did an ad for it. And the ad was unique because it wasn't showing a pristine, clean shoe. It was a big close-up of the shoe, but the shoe was all dirty and muddy and, you know, was flexed. And, and you just looked at the shoe and you just thought, that shoe is meant to be run in. That's the kind of shoe that's going to, like, they made that shoe to run in. And I remember I bought a pair, and the first day I went out and ran 13 miles in them. And it was like, I still remember that run. It was one of my favorite runs of all time. And I don't know if it was the ad influenced me or, or what, but I, I still have that memory in my head. That is awesome. Okay, well, I know, and I alluded to it earlier, Fritz, last question. And I asked this, and I would have asked it anyway, but I ask it, we've not been afraid to time or date stamp this. We already mentioned that we're doing the virtual pub run. Peachy's Pub is open because of the fact that our podcast studio has been redefined as a shipping fulfillment center for our e-commerce business during this particular season. But it is one of those things where you could say Atlanta has unrest, right? And we don't have all the answers at Big Peach Running Company. I don't think anybody does, but we are so proud of our city. We are so proud of the Atlanta area. We are so proud to call Georgia home, even with all of the challenges that we must work through together as runners, as walkers, we get it step by step forward progress. We will get better. And my goodness, I hope we run and we run. We prove that we run as one. So as a proud Atlanta, someone who I know you too has come to call this as your adopted home. What are some of the things that you just love about Atlanta, whether it is as an athlete, as a father, as a business person, as someone who is just looking forward to tomorrow being better even than what today was. What is it that even to this day, after having been in Atlanta as long as you have, having had opportunities to leave but didn't, that makes you feel so good about us both and all of our listeners perhaps being connected by Run ATL? What is it for you? I'll tell you what, it's, um, I hope this answers your question the right way. I think Atlanta is an unknown and undiscovered gem. And I think if you live here, just all the things, you know, it's the kind of the climate, the city, all the little neighborhoods, you know, the closeness of the mountains, you can get out to the beach. So all those things are amazing. My favorite thing, so when I moved to Atlanta, I moved them from the Pacific Northwest to Atlanta. And there were a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest who were like, you're going where? You're moving to Atlanta? And I love it 
when those people come out and visit today. I love taking them around, showing them Atlanta, um, the food scene, the running scene, whatever it is, to a person, they're like, wow, I never knew. This is cool. Atlanta, like, they, they, it changes their perceptions um, completely. Like, they, they go back, like, Atlanta rocks. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's an undiscovered, relatively unknown gem that if you live here and the quality of life, the, all the, the people, um, you appreciate it. I don't think people outside of Atlanta really know it. We have something special here for sure. I agree with that. And Fritz, you are certainly special and it is awesome not only to call you a colleague, but certainly to call you a friend. He is Fritz Taylor, one of the biggest influences I know in this industry. Fritz, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And like you've already indicated, it's our promise to have you back. I love it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Before we close, a couple of quick things. D2, I'm going to put you on the spot very quickly. We normally get the chance to play your very slickly produced what might be called an advertisement for Big Peach Running Company. You've been off the hook having to produce those since we've gone to the pubcast, not on the podcast. But you've got a couple of cool things that are out and about. First of all, we're coming down the home stretch for the Run ATL training program. This is going to get released in the first week of June. Can people still join as you take them as the head coach and our guide into the July 4th holiday? Is that still something people can do? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, we're about halfway through the, the training program because obviously the training program was going to target a race on July 4th. Um, so we're about halfway through that. We're uh, at this point, by the time this releases, we'll be on finishing week four and going to week five out of a eight week training program. But sure, I mean, right now, there aren't a whole lot of races that are on the calendar. Um, still a lot of virtual runs. There's actually several uh, 4th of July virtual runs that are uh, taking place. But it's never, you know, too late to get started or too early to get started now that, you know, like the Peachtree Road Race has been rescheduled for November. So running is keeping us sane. It's keeping us healthy. And um so doing this in a virtual environment, I think, is a way of there's a little bit of accountability. But for those that, you know, sign up and, uh, you know, also sign up through Strava to track your mileage, you will be entered into some prizes. So we will be giving away at least, well, for sure, we're giving away two Garmin uh, 445. So we'll be raffling off two of those. Plus, we got some of our other vendors like Triggerpoint and Goo who will also be providing some prizes. So overall, not too bad for a free program when all you have to do is sign up and then go out and, and get your mileage in. Not too bad at all. I would actually say spectacular. Are you willing to go on record, give us any preview? I know there's still much to be learned about what fall looks like for local or perhaps domestic international race calendars, but any chance of a fall program under the Run ATL training program banner? Yes, absolutely. I mean, so what we're going to do is, and still not knowing what the situation will be like, uh, but we will go back and we, you know, knowing that the PC Rotors has been rescheduled for Thanksgiving Day, we will uh, do it, uh, you know, hit the repeat button and do an eight-week training program. For, so for those that are, are training right now, you're just, you're going to get a second, you know, if you sign up again, you'll get to, you know, train again uh, for a second time through the program. It'll also be cooler, so you're getting those that hard, you know, and you know, tough miles in right now in the heat, which just will prepare you, and you'll have a probably a, even better performance come November. So we'll have that again 
um, in the fall. We'll announce the dates for that uh, as we get kind of closer and kind of see kind of you know what what the racing scene looks like obviously we've had races like the boston marathon which is very disappointing um so we'll see kind of how things progress from here but you know it is our intent to um you know to support the run atl community and those that are out there running that are missing the group runs and to do this uh you know even if it's virtually having a way of kind of connecting with our community excellent so whether you're part of the program already or would like to be in the future second bite of the apple in the fall d2 is on record having said so d2 i heard the rumor that you're going to double the price for the fall is that true yes it's, it'll it'll be free times two okay two times zero is still zero so there we put them on the spot as well so the price will remain zero for the fall so make sure that if you are not already involved get your sampling for the last month here for the spring summer program and make a note to stay connected with us as we head towards fall as that free program with all the bells and whistles that you can see on the screen or that d2 alluded to if you are not getting our weekly newsletter you should certainly do so you can sign up on the homepage at bigpeachrunningco.com. For those of you who already get this newsletter each week, this is not new news to you. For the rest of you, before you go and sign up, you should know that the first installment of the new Run ATL Men's and Women's Collection, it landed this past weekend. It is in our stores and online right now. On the screen, you'll see a sampling of some of the very cool and weather appropriate women's styles. Obviously both genders served as part of that new run ATL collection out in the market. Certainly get yours. And before we sign off, a special thank you again to all of you. You are indeed run ATL. We appreciate you journeying with us through this unique season. Another thank you to Fritz Taylor for his insight and for joining us on the podcast. D2, thank you for everything you do. Certainly, we've made the commitment. We will hold to it. We'll be back next Tuesday night. For those of you who would like to join us live every Tuesday at 6 p.m., Peachy's Pub is open. And certainly, each Monday, we release the new episode on a weekly basis up and through July 4th. So check us out there. For those of you who did hear us mention Rod Foley, D2, did the research. That's episode 13. So check that out between now and next week if you've not listened previously. But as we sign off, as we say, as we certainly mean, today perhaps more than ever, may your best miles be those covered on foot. So long, everybody. Thank you.